amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello and welcome to the Daily Red, your lunchtime catch-up on all things Liverpool FC. We begin with sad news. Uh, Fabinho's father has passed away. His wife, Rebecca Tavares, tweeted about a couple of hours ago, and Jurgen Klopp, when asked about it in his press conference, said, It is a private situation. He is here and doing what he is able to do. We all feel for him and are with him. We give our condolences to his family and all the love we can. Um, obviously, this is far more important than football. And Fabinho was in a position now that Alison Becker and Jurgen Klopp have found themselves in over the last year, uh, losing a parent and in all likelihood not being able to travel home to be with his family uh, and attend the funeral. It's got to be a tough time for Fab. He would expect that perhaps he won't play now tomorrow but that's irrelevant the bigger more important thing is that he's surrounded by people that care for him he will have two very good friends and Alison and Bobby around him and obviously all the rest of his teammates as well he's very close with Thiago and a couple of others so you know the boys will rally around him and hopefully Fab gets through this and he's you know in the right mental space he's not running things over in his head that he can't affect. Uh, For whatever it's worth, I just want to send the thoughts of everybody here at Anfield Index and Anfield Index Pro to Fabinho and his family at this horrible time. Other things to come out of the Jurgen Klopp press conference, he says that Jordan Henderson and Thiago Alcantara look fine and is now up to us to make some decisions. Uh, I assume that means in regards to whether they start against Burnley or whether they come off the bench or whether they're involved at all. He said about Burnley, we will have we will have our first full crowd in 520 days. We will try to enjoy it. And to do that, you have to play positive football. There are no guarantees, especially against Burnley. Sean is doing a brilliant job. They can be annoying and can play. Sean obviously being Sean Dyche, who's done a, an amazing job at Burnley. And it's good to see Klopp, you know, recognise that they've had 
one or two little arguments in the past, but I think there is a, a very strong mutual respect between them. Klopp says that Anfield is a really special place and we are very happy to have it back. By it back, he means you. He means the fans that will be in the stadium creating what I hope will be record levels of noise uh, on Saturday lunchtime. With regards to Jordan Henderson's contract that obviously David Ornstein had reported on on Monday, Klopp says there are no developments. Now, there's two sides to this. Number one, it may well just be that with the Fabinho news, the club don't want to put a contract announcement out there. It wouldn't be the right message or the right tone. Or it may well be that the Ornstein article was not accurate. Perhaps no agreement is in place. Either Ornstein might have jumped the gun or been leaked something as he was the first time around. But Jurgen Klopp says at the moment, no development. So that's all we really have to go on. There are also no developments with regards to Jordan Shakiri's move to Leon. Leon still seemed to be waiting for Maxwell Cornet to leave the club. Um, so, so they can free up some money. But Julian Lorenz says that the deal is done from Shakiri's side. It is just a matter of Leon and Liverpool, you know, agreeing final terms and Leon making a payment. Um, ben Woodburn's loan to Hearts seemed to be in a bit of doubt yesterday. There was a report in the Sportsman or the Scotsman, the Scotsman, I believe, about Jurgen Klopp not wanting him to go. Now, I wonder if this is a little bit of brinksmanship with Klopp, perhaps trying to get um, Hearts to agree to an option to buy or an obligation to buy in January because Woodburn only has the year left in his contract. If he goes on loan until January, he returns to Liverpool with six months left. There's no real benefit for Ben Woodburn in signing an extension. Now, he might agree to a one-year extension so that Liverpool could get some value out of selling him in January, but we'll wait and see. At the moment, it appears to be stalled, but again, that just could be reckless speculation on behalf of the uh, the Scotsman. Uh, not a whole bunch else happening. Um, none of the major journalists reporting anything of note this morning. This is Anfield's lead story. Could Liverpool's quiet summer hint at a bigger plan in place? Uh, this is basically just you know the suggestion that maybe next summer there could be something special afoot. Uh, I personally don't put any stock into that idea that's been floated by a couple of journalists. Um, this article suggests that Liverpool believe they can get Erling Haaland next summer. I think Liverpool could pay the fee. They're just not going to pay the wages. Because Haaland is asking for half a million a week, and that's more than Salah's going to get this summer. It's just not going to happen. There's just no way we will obliterate our wage bill like that. Whatever about doing it for Salah, who has earned the money here, we're not going to do it for someone who's not played a game for the club. Um, there's an article on Liverpool.com. Um, about James, is it Balagizzi, Balagizzi? Apologies. I've never actually heard his name said because I don't watch um, under-18s. And when I watch the under-23s, I tend to watch it with the sound off because the commentators bother me. Um, That's a me thing, not a them thing. Uh, I I don't watch any football anymore with commentary on it. Um, But he says how impressive he's been, how he's shown flashes of Ginny Wijnaldum traits. 
um, how he could potentially become the next one to make the breakthrough into the first team. He has been highly touted. He's very, very highly rated by those who watch Liverpool's underage teams. He is a big, big unit at the underage level and is able to dominate games. Whether he can do that at senior level or not remains to be seen. Uh, on Anfield Index, we have a really strong article this morning from Stephen Smith. If you don't follow Stephen, and uh, I think his account might be on private on Twitter, but it's at Steve without the second E's, at S-T-E-V-L-F-C. Give him a follow. Tweet him, tell him I sent you. Really good guy. Really good writer. Like, really, really good writer. Really good article here this morning on Mo Salah. Uh, Mo Salah, the world's greatest in waiting. It is absolutely excellent. Give it a read. Check out his stuff on EPL Index as well. Very, very good stuff over there. Podcast-wise, there is the Legends Lowdown with Jason McAteer, Trev Downey, and Jason having a chat, a wide-ranging chat, um, about the Liverpool and Ireland stars ambassadorial work for Ireland, uh, for, for Liverpool, among other things. So do check that one out. That one is live now. There's also the Rival Recon and Scouted Pods for Burnley. Um, so do check those out before the game tomorrow. And we have a little bit of a treat for you. There has been a recent Money Talks podcast entitled RIP FFP with Mo Chatra and Tadiwa. Gotten a lot of great feedback from it. And Mo is absolutely phenomenal at what he does. It's very interesting to talk to Mo because he comes across very unassuming. I'd known Mo for years before I knew what he did for a living. I thought he worked professionally as a, as a wrestling writer. Turns out that's just his side gig. Mo is a financial genius. And Mo is very, very good at digging into numbers and coming to real conclusions. And that's what he's done. He's had a really in-depth look at a couple of things here. It's a really good listen. And for those of you who are not Anfield Index Pro subscribers and are maybe considering joining Anfield Index Pro, let me first say there is a free trial, seven days, no upfront cost. If you don't like it, you don't stick with it. But to maybe give you an extra taste of what we do here at Anfield Index Pro, here is that Money Talks podcast with Mo Chatra, free to listen, off the wall, as we like to say. Enjoy, and I will see you Monday. Take care of yourselves. Up the Reds. Enjoying this podcast? Then why not supercharge your support for the Reds with Anfield Index Pro? With around 30 premium podcasts every month, AI Pro offers the very best reviews, reaction and debate on all things LFC. From the acclaimed statistics and deep dive analytics found in our Under Pressure podcast, to the transfer links, scouting reports and fast live reaction shows we record after every match, AI Pro is home to our very best content. With regular appearances by Reds legends like Jan Mulby and Sir Kenny Dalglish, plus insight from journalists, sports scientists, coaches and psychologists, we'll help bring you closer to the club you love. There's never been a better time to take AI Pro for a test drive, available on all popular podcast platforms, with free apps for iOS and Android. You can try it absolutely free with no strings attached. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com to start your seven-day free trial now. Hello, AI Pro subscribers, and welcome to another Money Talks. My name is Tadiwa Chanakira, and I'm joined by the franchise, um, the face of Money Talks, Mo Chatra. Mo, 
Thank you so much for doing this. Um, I know these are fan favorites and, and very informative. Um, welcome, first and foremost. And how are you feeling about the the season that's just begun? Um, cautiously optimistic is probably the best way of describing it. And uh, yeah, great to uh, be on again on Money Talks. And uh, yeah, it, it's um, lovely, obviously, to start the season with a win. And um, clearly hoping that uh, we consolidate some of that momentum with another victory this weekend uh, before we uh, have the mighty Chelsea turn up and uh, that's going to be a huge game uh, in terms of uh, both of our seasons, both of them and for us so I'm really looking forward to that but uh, no, um, I say cautiously optimistic because I like us to spend a bit more money <laughs> but you know we'll, we'll come on to that and I'm sure most Liverpool fans are feeling much the same uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll go into a bit more detail about well can we or can't we spend more um and if we can't why why aren't we spending um but uh, yeah it's it's um it's lovely to uh, finally have premier league football and liverpool football club back in action it, it's never the same without any of that going on so uh, happy days yeah and Ch- uh, city losing opening day doesn't hurt either i think it makes our win all the more sweeter but mo you're the guy that makes money make sense so we'll jump into this. Um, one of the subjects that has caused a lot of discussion among fellow Reds over the summer, you know, like it seems to do every single summer, is Liverpool's finances. The club has so far spent more than it has brought in. But with the likes of Shakiri and Phillips set to leave, um, the club will likely make a profit on player trading if no further signings are, are made. And, and I'm hoping that's not the case. But... The question is, does the club have no money to spend and is purely reliant on sales to generate these transfer funds? Or, you know, is none of the money from the Redbird investment not available? Okay, so um, first of all, you know, with my fan hat on, and you know, just as I alluded to a couple of moments ago, um, you know, much like the vast majority of fans, probably not every single fan, I mean, there are the odd, few fans who believe we shouldn't add to the squad and we've got a, enough there, enough in terms of depth um, to go the season. Uh, but obviously the vast majority of fans feel, no, we could really do with one or two more incomings, especially in light of AFCON um, coming up during the season where we will lose um, three of our uh, players, two of whom are um, very integral to um, our plans, our efforts to um, win the Premier League this season. So. In answer to um, the first question, which is, does the club have no money to spend and is purely reliant on sales? Um, the, the short answer is um, that there should be money to spend. And even if you look away from Liverpool, um, ask yourself this. Um, Arsenal Football Club, for example, are um, in a position of having no European football, so no Champions League revenue, no Europa League revenue, not even this, what, what is it called, the Europa Conference League or something like that, the piddly um, third-tier European competition. None of that income to come this season either. And uh, despite that, um, you know, they've spent £50 million on a very mediocre centre-back and you know they are making efforts to sign um, James Madison from Leicester um, and that could be a deal that might be worth £60, £70 million. Um, and, and they've made one or two more signings on top of that. Um, 
And this is a club who, over the last four or five seasons, have made substantially less money than Liverpool. So even if you put aside Liverpool Football Club, you just look, have to look around other clubs and to see what they are doing um, to try and then make sense. Well, is it that all of these other clubs are financially irresponsible and Liverpool are the only one that aren't? Or is it perhaps that Liverpool have been a bit too cautious? And that is my view, that Liverpool are being too cautious. Um, still worried about um, the uncertainty related to um, the pandemic. Worried that, yes, we might have fans back in the stadiums, but um, if the government were to um, bring in further restrictions during the season, that could have an impact on uh, match day revenue. Um, you know, there could be potentially impacts relating to co uh, commercial and broadcast revenue as well. So definitely fair to say our owners take a very, very cautious approach to managing the club's finances. And part of that is due to the fact that they um, look not to spend any of their own money on the, on the football club. And they have not done so um, since pretty much um, the first year of them coming into the club. So why am I saying that there is money to spend? Um, so there's a couple of reasons. Yes, we had no, or virtually no match day income last season, which would normally rake in over 80 million pounds. We also know that um, television revenue was also hit by the fact that um, rebates had to be paid um, back to the Premier League and I think to uh, UEFA for the Champions League too. Despite that, um, what, one of the things that I've talked about previously is that Liverpool were paying huge amounts of money in terms of transfer fee instalments um, to selling clubs who'd sold players to us over the last four or five years. So your Romers, who'd sold us Alisson and um, Mohamed Salah, uh, you know, an RB Le Leipzig, who'd sold us uh, Nandi Keita, uh, Southampton, who'd sold us um, a whole raft of players. They were all getting money from us. And they were, all these clubs who'd sold players to us over a number of years um, received £450 million between the three successive seasons of 1718 through to 1920. Now, by the end of that 1920 season, the bulk of our transfer fee debt had been repaid. And as you know, um, after 2018, we've barely spent money on, on incomings. Um, yes, we spent a fair bit, a fair chunk last summer when we brought in both um, Jota and Thiago, um, but in 2019, uh, we, we spent very, very little. Um, this summer, yes, we have spent, but um, you know we are potentially once the sales of, as you noted earlier, Shakir and Phillips go through, um, going to be in a surplus position in terms of play trading, provided no more players come in. Um, so that is one thing. And then the other thing is, um, in the past couple of years, up until November, December time, um, we'd paid out of club revenues again um, in the region of £50 million toward the redevelopment of Kirby. Um, and for any fan that thinks you know that was a waste of money, um, they're living in absolute cloud cuckoo land. Um, the club needed um, you know, a first-class training facility, and um, that was money absolutely well spent. And uh, I'd much personally rather have that money spent now um, than on a couple of signings. Um, so... So, so that was some, something that was an absolutely worthwhile investment. But the point being, that building, that project was completed, its costs fully incurred um, by the end of 2020, pretty much. Um, so again, this summer, 
we don't have outgoings related to that. Our transfer fee payments to selling clubs um, for this uh, you know, calendar year are significantly less than in previous years. So yes, despite the loss of match income for the season just gone, uh, 2021, um, we should still have surplus funds available to spend on players. And as I noted earlier, I think it's more a case of the owners being ultra cautious, uh, which is their MO, unfortunately, that you know they are um, very, very careful when it comes to, uh, very prudent as well, when it comes to making decisions around spending money. Um, so then let's turn to the second part of that question. What about this Redbird investment um, money, some 500 million plus dollars um, that Redbird paid for a stake of FSG? Um, and that transaction occurred only, what, three, four months ago. Um, so many fans, not only of Liverpool Football Club, but even of the Boston Red Sox, which is um, another franchise um, asset of FSG, all both, fan, both sets of fans rather have been asking the question, well, will we see any of this money spent on our team stroke clubs? Um, we're seeing very little evidence of it thus far. That's not to say money won't be spent from that money. It could well be that um, the investment into the Anfield Road end, uh, we'll see that money being spent on that. Um, but I, I, th I think I can say with a fair amount of certainty that we won't see any of that money being spent on um, incomings when it comes to transfers. And uh, much as, as, again, with my fans hat on, would love to see that happen. Um, I, I think that um, it won't. And um, I think the vast majority of that money, possibly even the whole of it, will be pocketed uh, by FSG, which they are entitled to do. Um, but other, other clubs in a similar situation may, uh, or certainly owners rather in a similar situation, may decide to um, invest some of that money into, into their club. And, and you mentioned other clubs there towards the end, um, you know, and on a similar subject, the business being done by other clubs, I'm looking at the likes of Man City with the biggest one, the Grealish deal, and obviously PSG with all their signings that they've brought in. That, that's kind of created a lot of debate about financial fair play. Now, I know only a couple of weeks ago, um, there was development in the FFP story itself that the Premier League had won a court case against Man City, you know, relating to disclosure of information and evidence. Is anything, you know, is there anything there that you can update us on where that situation is concerned? Yeah, sure. Um, and, and, you know, that situation we've seen over the summer where, you know, your Man Cities and PSGs particularly have um, been able to bring in players for either very high transfer fees and or extremely high wages. Um, it, it rubs a bit of salt in the wounds of uh, Liverpool fans, knowing that Liverpool have generated so much money over the last three, four seasons. Um, you know, from a revenue perspective, has been in the top five and in the, in the most recent De Deloitte Money League. And yet, despite that, um, we seem to be really struggling um, to bring um, additions to the squad, whereas other clubs seem to have no such problems. And it's as if the pandemic pandemic um, has never happened and isn't happening because they seem completely oblivious um, when it comes to their financial activities. Um, so yes, let, let's, let's talk about this then. The Premier League commenced an investigation into Manchester City um, where FFP is concerned all the way back in March 2019. So that is coming up to two and a half years ago. And this investigation followed very quickly in terms of its announcement 
um, from the, the UEFA investigation, which was announced, I think, just days or maybe a couple of weeks prior to that, uh, who also um, looking into FFP in Man City um, because of uh, leaks in the Spiegel. So um, these football leaks that have resulted in various um, stories, mostly through hacked emails, um, going into, into the press about football clubs and its operations. And a lot of it has been quite embarrassing for certain football clubs. Um, Premier League decided, OK, well, maybe we should investigate this as well, not just rely on the UEFA one. Now, what came out only a couple of weeks or so ago, uh, maybe about three weeks ago, was the fact that um, for over two years, um, the Premier League has really been struggling with obtaining information from Manchester City. In other words, Manchester City have not cooperated with this investigation, which is um, a large part of the reason why um, it is dragged on for two plus years. And um, what this court case was, was uh, an appeal which Man Manchester City was unsuccessful over in trying to keep a lid on um, reporting of the fact that the Premier League is still investigating Manchester City um, for FFP breaches or alleged FFP breaches. And um, that was basically the gist of it. Um, so I think that the other kind of element to it was, was that um, Manchester City were, as a result of the judgment, um, basically being told that they would need to disclose information that they've been reluctant to share. And I also believe that if they point back, just refuse to share it altogether, um, that the um, hacked emails that um, this uh, individual um, from Portugal um, had obtained uh, would potentially be admissible and could be used as evidence. So that that is um, an interesting development. Um, but again, I think given how incompetent UEFA has been in upholding its own rules um, around FFP, where Manchester City has been concerned. Um, I, I wouldn't certainly be holding my breath that anything would happen. I think what would be more productive, though, is if UEFA, um, sorry, the Premier League, looked to possibly um, devise its own set of um, FFP rules um, independent of uh, UEFA, and um, I think that would potentially be a bit more effective in terms of trying to level up the playing field um, for Premier League clubs. Because, you know, it's hard to argue that Manchester City have not been the dominant football club um, in England over the last decade. You know, they've won five of the last 10 or so Premier Leagues. And, um, you know, they've won a whole bunch of other trophies domestically as well on top of that. Um, so they, they have clearly been hugely successful um, but in my view and you know this isn't necessarily a view um, shared by everyone here at Anfield Index, Anfield Index Pro, um, but certainly my view is that they've financially doped their way to all of this success and um, I think it's more down to the fact of incompetence on the part of football administrators as well as um, a few legal technicalities as to why they've been able to get away with it on uh, two occasions with UEFA now, um, whereas I think with a more robust set of administrators with rules that are a bit more watertight, I think that they would struggle um, to operate in what they currently have been and, and indeed have been for the last 12, 13 years. Um, so 
so that is basically the gist of that story. I think there's still a little bit to come out of the whole situation, but ultimately I think when all is said and done, I'd be certainly surprised if anything substantial happens to Manchester City by way of punishment. And uh, that would be disappointing, uh, but you know, given the track record of football administrators in upholding its rules when it comes to the major clubs um, domestically or around Europe, um, it, it certainly wouldn't be a surprise. Yeah, and, and, and you know, sticking with the football regulators, because you, you bring up some interesting sp- points with regards to how rules are being enforced and maybe Premier League introducing something themselves. Let's stick with this um, FFP situation. And we noted earlier, we brought up the clubs like Man City, like PSG, and the in particular, you know, the business that they've done They've done a lot of business that has raised eyebrows from a FFP perspective. Last week, however, you know, reports started to emerge that UEFA is looking at scrapping FFP, perhaps replacing it with a new form of financial control, kind of based around a salary cap, maybe similar to some of the bigger league, you know, the American um, sports leagues. Would such a change be good or bad for Liverpool and its ability to compete with clubs owned by these very wealthy owners? Yeah, so um, just to provide a bit of context then, so uh, reports emerged last week that um, FFP, um, in its current guise anyway, looks to be on its way out of the door. And um, it's not a surprise. I mean, when the um, Court of Arbitration for Sport overturned UEFA's um, ban on Manchester City from European competitions for two seasons, um, I think it was what? June, July last year, uh, possibly even earlier than that, I said FFP is dead. And I think that what came out in, in, the, in the press last week would certainly imply that FFP, as we know it, is pretty much dead in the water. Um, so the reports basically stated that um, UEFA is looking to, quote unquote, revamp its FFP rules um, by focusing it not on um, clubs breaking even, but more on clubs um, achieving um, a salary cap, which um, is reported to be 70% of club revenue. Now, the big, big, big problem with that is, well, what is club revenue? Uh, And that has been at the heart of the disputes that UEFA has had with a variety of clubs, um, but most notably with the Manchester Cities and PSG up until... Um, the chairman of PSG um, managed to uh, worm his way into the upper echelons of UEFA, since when, just by sheer coincidence, um, all things have gone quiet when it comes to UEFA's investigations into PSG's breaches of FFP. So, um, this is where we stand. If it's based on a salary cap with no scrutiny of what the revenue is, then it really is a meaningless um, set of conditions and rules. And the reason for that is um, I'm of the view, and I'm not alone in this, as many people that look at football finance, look at the commercial revenues of a club like Manchester City, of a club like PSG, and ask very obvious questions such as, well, how can these clubs have had huge growth in commercial revenues in a very short space of time 
which just happened to coincide with the introduction of FFP rules. And, um, you know, it's stuff like that which um, the likes of Manchester City and PSG have really struggled to provide any answers to. And in fact, the football leaks, hacked emails, uh, strongly seem to suggest that, in fact, um, a lot of the commercial revenue that we're going into and has been going into um, Manchester City and PSG in particular um, has come through companies that just so happen to be based in the same nations as the owners. And some of these emails suggested that um, the contributions from just, for example, Netihad Airways um, was only a small fraction of the overall um, commercial deal because the rest of it was topped up by um, the government, which for all intents and purposes is the same, one and the same as the owners of either the PSG or Manchester City. So where does that leave Liverpool then if we have this change of rule? So at this moment in time, we are seeing um, a Chelsea, for example, just able to quickly go out and sign a Lukaku just because last summer's um, marquee striker signing had a rocky first season, which is something Liverpool, with its current ownership at least, would never in a million years be able to do. This is a club also in Chelsea who spent 80 million, well, sorry, about 70 million pounds up front to um, trigger the buyout clause for Kepa, Ariza Balaga, um, from Spain in, what was it, 2018? Yeah, it was 2018. He didn't work out. Um, and so the club then went and spent um, a huge chunk of money on a replacement goalkeeper. And um, that, that's how Chelsea operates. So never mind PSG and Manchester City, your Chelsea's are able to do that as well. If this salary cap comes in, uh, if, if, for example, a PSG or a Manchester City wage bill spirals to a 500 million figure, um, all that the owners have to do is ensure that, okay, our revenue has to then ensure that that £500 million wage bill is only 70%. And if it isn't, if they say, okay, it isn't, then their punishment will be a, a luxury tax, as has been reported, um, which is a fancy way of saying it will be a fine. Um, so what's a fine to people who have unlimited wealth? So, so that is why... In answer to the question, it's terrible news for Liverpool. Um, you know, Liverpool Football Club was bought out by FSG, and one of the first things that they ever talked about was um, that they knew UEFA were planning on implementing these rules, financial fair play, to ensure that football clubs operate in um, a way that is sustainable, and also in a way that ensures that no club can just simply buy its way to success. Well, we've seen now, after a string of um, high-profile court defeats of um, FFP rules, that uh, FFP as we know it is, is dead. And um, that is why um, I am seriously concerned now about where things stand for Liverpool. Wow, <laughs> that is a, a lot of, of things to digest here. But Mo... Um... Following on, you know, what you've just outlined now, I, I hate to do this, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Do you think that FSG are the right owners to take Liverpool forward and help the club, you know, to be one of these true European powerhouses for the years to come? 
Um, okay, <laughs> right. Um, if you put a gun to my head, or put me on the spot, whichever way you want to phrase it, I'll, I'll be quite straight and blunt. Um, the landscape has changed. The landscape will be very different in the years to come compared to uh, the last seven, eight, nine years when clubs at least try to maintain the pretense of trying to comply with a set of rules. And to be fair, the vast majority of clubs genuinely in fear of um, falling foul of these rules and they try genuinely to adhere to FFP rules. Whereas you had a small handful of clubs that um, basically stuck two fingers up at them and were of the view that, look, um, we can afford the most high powered lawyers in the world and we will just pay them whatever we need to um, to nullify any legal challenge to us um, being accused of breaking these rules. Now that FFP has, has existed for um, a decade or so, is pretty much um, dead, rest in peace FFP, um, and will be replaced by a watered down, meaningless uh, version of FFP in my view. I no longer think that FSG are the right owners for this club, because as much as financial stewardship and sustainability is important, I think if any fan of Liverpool says that the most important thing for them is that my club is financially stable, um, I'd seriously question um, why they're a fan of that club. And that's me as an accountant saying that. I became a fan of Liverpool Football Club um, because I want it to be as successful as possible. And that's not to say that Liverpool can't be successful with FSG, but the way that this landscape is changing around finance and money, um, money talks now more than ever before, if you pardon the pun. Um, and we're seeing that right now, this summer transfer window. You know, if you look at what Chelsea are doing, if you look at what Manchester City, PSG, even Manchester United, um, and then say, well, how is, how is the pandemic affecting these clubs? Um, you, you really then have to say, mm, it doesn't seem to be. And why is that? Because they have a way of uh, ensuring that the finances are there to facilitate these deals. And they are now snapping up these top, top players. And here's the thing to do. Well. We as a club decided several years ago that we don't want to be snapping up the best youth talent around in football and developing them through um, our academy. Um, but instead, we'd look to sign select top talents um, but we didn't want to compete and uh, try to financially outdo your Manchester Cities and Chelsea's. And so we introduced a salary cap to our academy of, I think it's £40,000 a year. Meanwhile, there are players, 16 years old, um, who sign up to the academies of Chelsea, of Manchester City, um, of Man United, who are earning um, multiple times that 40000 a year cap. So as a result, um, the, the, the majority of the cream of um, youth talent um, who want to play for an English club at that level are being swept up by your Manchester Cities, your Chelsea's, uh, your Man United's. So um, our, our academy system um, has the 
best or the better set of players that are at the next level down. Then we as a club decided, okay, we don't want to be signing or spending huge amounts of money on um, players that may be between 18 to 21, um, no matter how promising they may look, because it's seen as too big a risk. And if you look at our transfer history, you probably have to go back all the way to Jordan Henderson 10 years ago for the last time he signed a player who was 21 or under for a significant transfer fee. And in fact, um, I think even since then, I mean, you probably have to go back six years to Joe Gomez for the last time he even signed a player under the age of 21 to go into our first team squad. Whereas we've seen your Chelsea's, your Manchester City's, your Man United's, even other clubs like um, an Arsenal, a Leicester City, um, a Tottenham Hotspur, who will spend um, relatively significant sums on players in that age bracket. So we aren't targeting players in that age bracket too. We instead want to target players who've got some data behind them, who've had a few seasons behind them, who are seen therefore as less of a risk. If they've been able to do it successfully over four, five, six seasons, um, then okay, let, let's look at them then. So we target then players who are 23 and upwards. The problem then is if a player is very good, is strong, is successful, and develops a reputation around Europe as a top uh, promising young football player, then that player inevitably will see it, their valuation go into the 50, 60, 70 million pound bracket. And again, we are then looking at not spending that kind of money on a single player with the odd one or two exceptions. And yes, we did it for Van Dyke. Yes, we did it for Allison, um, but that's about it. And we've not done it for over three years now. Um, so we are not looking to sign up the most promising players in the 23 to 24, 25 age range. Um, instead, we're looking at the next level down. And even then, it seems that it's a bit of a struggle. So it, it's a case now where the entire model seems to be about achieving something where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That let's bring together... Um, players that are good or very good but certainly not world-class and look to develop into develop them into world-class players so yes we've done that with Mo yes we've done that with Mane yes we've done that with the Bobby Firmino and, and one or two others obviously um, but let, let's see if that's something that's sustainable because history shows that the clubs that tend to sign the elite players um, and, and this is something that's not just a modern thing you have to you can go back decades and those clubs that sign the elite players are the ones that are the most successful and so that is why um, I'm worried about whether we can maintain um, continued success under this model and with these owners and as I said earlier I think money talks and we're at the stage now where the landscape is changing and changing swiftly and these owners as noble as his intentions are, as great as they've done for the club in terms of improving the club's infrastructure with the main sand expansion, kickstarting the Anfield Road End expansion, um, investing in Kirby, bringing in Klopp, bringing in Edwards to the sporting director role, which I was personally critical of, and that was me being proven spectacularly wrong because he's done a fantastic job. You know, despite these successes, um, that was at a time when we all hoped and we all expected that FFP could achieve that level playing field. The game has changed. It really has. And as much as 
uh, FSG have done a tremendous amount of good. I think they're in a position where they can no longer um, ensure that Liverpool will be as as uh, competitive as clubs around them. And my fear is that you know, right as we were on the cusp of becoming a dominant force in England and in English football, um, that could be taken away just purely by our rivals outspending us and signing up all of these players that we've probably scouted quite intensively over the last three or four years. And we saw that last summer with Havertz and Werner signing for Chelsea when we knew that um, Klopp was a bigger admirer of those. And, you know, similarly this, this summer and next summer, we're likely to see players that, again, we've probably scouted intens- intensively over the last three, four, five years um, end up at rival clubs because we are unable or unwilling to pay the fees that would be required to bring them to Liverpool Football Club. And so that's why I think that I think Liverpool's longer term interests are with um, moving ownership to um, people with deeper pockets. The question will then naturally be asked, well, who is there? Well, all I'll say to that is, look, there are two, three, four thousand billionaires out there. I personally don't know all of them. All I know is, is that, you know, the world is full of very rich people and more, more notably rich people that would be willing to spend money on their football club because make no mistake um, the approach of FSG is very out of kilter with football owners generally 95 97% plus of football owners spend their own money on their clubs I gave an example on money talks a few months ago where I noted that the owner of um, a team in I think League 2 Plymouth I think um, he, the owner for that club had invested I think five or six million pound of his own money in a single season something FSG have never done. And these are the owners of one of the European powerhouses who are unwilling to spend money. And the final point I make is, it's ironic that in 2003, the Morse family that used to own Liverpool Football Club made a decision to sell up Liverpool. They decided to sell it up because they used to actually put some money of their own into Liverpool Football Club but they felt that their investment into the club directly from their own finances was not enough to allow Liverpool Football Club to be competitive against its rivals, who were all becoming richer and Abramovich had just come into Chelsea and was starting to spend money like it was going out of fashion. And they felt, OK, this has now outgrown us. And the irony is we are now with owners 18 years on who never mind um, can't spend a moderate amount of money, don't want to spend any money. And even even in the January transfer window just gone, the manager of the club was basically pleading and begging just to bring any centre-back reinforcements in. And despite the European Super League um, PR disaster and also um, bringing in politicians from the Tory party to Anfield um, just a few weeks after that, and a variety of other kind of embarrassments, like the apology that had to be given um, earlier in the season, earlier in the calendar year, sorry. Uh, despite that, you think, okay, well, FSG have got a bit of PR um, patching up to do here when it comes to its reputation. And I also thought, okay, well, given that, they'll probably try to be a bit more bullish and a bit less um, conservative when it comes to financial decisions. And all the evidence is, Okay, yes, there is a couple of weeks of the transfer window left. All the evidence is they are continuing to be very, very um, strict when it comes to financial spending and 
you know, it, it, it does concern me that, you know, where, where, where there is a club that's almost competing with your Leicesters and other mid-table clubs in terms of targeting, you know, middle-of-the-road um, players rather than the elite, which is what Liverpool Football Club should be uh, trying to target. Now, Mo, um, you've mentioned here, you know, the likes of being able to compete financially with some of these clubs, you know, notably the Chelsea's, the Man City's. But if you allow me to play devil's advocate here, you know, this past summer, we've got a cautionary tale that, that's been before all of our eyes. I'm, I'm looking at the situation with Barcelona where, you know, they, they've announced that they are 1.3 billion euros in debt. Isn't that, you know, isn't FSG's conservative approach to managing the finances, you know, good in that sense that, that we don't end up in a financial mess like a Barcelona? Yes, it is. Um, you know, it's um, quite staggering how the previous ownership at, uh, at that club allowed Manchester, sorry, I've got Manchester City on the brain, um, allowed um, Barcelona's financial affairs to spiral completely out of control. There was clearly no um, financial management there whatsoever, hence why they were agreeing to absolutely ludicrous um, kind of pay packets for the likes of Antoine Griezmann and even Messi, as great as he had been for that club and was obviously an iconic figure at the club. Um, but, but, um, just because there is, there is a case of, um, Barcelona as a European powerhouse, um, going into complete meltdown, that's not to say that we then have to go in completely the opposite direction and then be happy that that, that is the approach that we as a club take. Um, you know, there can be a middle ground where, you don't have to be quite so ultra cautious. You can be a little bit more relaxed in terms of financial decision making when it comes to this football club and football clubs more generally. Because let, let's let's be clear, um, football is like no other business. Um, you don't take over a football club with a view of turning huge profits and uh, paying yourselves large amount of dividends. Now, yes, I mean. The owners of Manchester United pay very healthy dividends to themselves every year out of the club's revenues. But um, in fairness to the club, they have um, achieved huge commercial revenues. And, um, you know, despite paying out 20 million plus a year to the Glazers through dividends, they are still able to afford um, to pay pretty handsome um, wages to top talents to attract them to the club. And on top of that, um, they're able to spend um, quite significant transfer fees. And the only reason they haven't been more successful is because their approach to uh, recruitment has been far more haphazard um, than has been the case with Liverpool, for example, who have had a more focused, more scientific um, and more um, considered approach to recruitment. And that is one of the things that frustrates me is that, um, you know, there are those who um, we'll come out in support of FSG and we'll say, OK, well, look at what happened with under Hicks and Gillette and look at what's happening to a Barcelona. Um, we don't want to, that to happen to us. We went through it back in 2010. We don't want it to happen again. 
but to continue to use that, especially 11 years on, as a reason or an excuse for the owners not to spend a bit more money, um, in, in my view, is, is, is unacceptable. Um, you know, we are there to support this club and we got into it because we want it to become as successful a club as possible. Um, if, if, if fans think that um, it, the club's balance sheet position is more important than on-field success, then again, I go back to my earlier point, what exactly are you supporting this club for? Um, and that's me as an accountant saying that yet again. So I, I, I don't accept the argument that um, just because there are clubs out there that have um, made a complete mess of their finances, that that justifies um, taking an ultra-cautious approach. Um, it, it is important to be financially sensible, but if, if um, other clubs are um, spending more on player recruitment um, or under very similar situations of um, being on the verge of um, going into um, you know, financial meltdown, hugely in debt, and it was a more common occurrence, then I'd say absolutely this is the right approach to take. However, as I noted earlier, Arsenal of all clubs, um, despite significantly lower revenues, um, are able to outspend us. Leicester City are able to outspend us. Um, there are several clubs out there that are outspending us. And, um, you know, we, we are lucky that we, between the periods of 2016 and 2018, had a fantastic golden patch when it comes to recruitment where we signed up a string of fantastic players. And um, we are still largely reliant on that core of players, plus some that uh, were with us from before that period um, in order to maintain um, success. But, you know, this is a group that is now advancing in age. Um, you know, most of them are 29 into their 30s. And if we keep on holding back investment, then it means that we're hitting a real problem where, you know, at a point in 2022, only next year, um, the majority of our um, you know, ideal first 11 will be in their 30s. It is not, is not good long-term planning by any stretch of the imagination. And so, so therefore, um, I, I think that um, taking a different approach is what is needed. And I just don't think, and going back to my other point, that that is an approach that FSG are willing to entertain. Even in light of a pandemic, they are very dogmatic, they are very stubborn in wanting to stick to a certain way of working. And yes, it had brought us some success, um, but I think that a lot of that success was, if anything, in spite of the FSG model, not because of it. I think that the, the key to our success has been inspired um, recruitment, plus world-class coaching from Klopp and his team. And yes, FSG sanctioned those deals, but it wasn't FSG that went out and identified a Mohamed Salah. It wasn't an FSG that identified an Alisson. They just said yes to those deals um, taking place. And again, this is not to discredit FSG. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going into complete FSG out mode by any stretch. What I am saying is that um, that is an approach that worked for us very, very well and helped to assemble a fantastic group of players that has brought us some fantastic silverware over the last couple of years. Um, but we all as Liverpool fans should want this club to be one that is in the tight reckoning, in the conversation year in, year out, like all top clubs should be. And the way that we are now set up is very much around building towards a peak of uh, success over a two, three year period and then going into transition for three, four, five years. 
For me, that is not acceptable for a club of the status of Liverpool. And that is why I think that, yes, we have a situation with Barcelona, but that, that's more an exception than the norm. If it was the norm, I would say FSG's approach is 100% the right one. I think they can loosen the purse strings. They can loosen the reins a little bit more and allow the club to spend and recruit in a more proactive way to support Klopp, to support Edwards. And I'm not seeing that. And uh, that, that's why, overall, as I mentioned earlier, I am concerned. Wow. Um, and, and I don't think I've heard a more compelling and, and knowledgeable argument um, as raised by you just now. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is why you're the man we bring on to make money make sense. But Mo, speaking of making money make sense, let, let's move the subject a little bit here and, and discuss one of the other key matters that people were interested in. You know, one of the areas that you have criticized the club about in the past has been commercial revenues. You know, the, the club has seen a significant increase in commercial revenues over the last decade. You have often maintained that the club could and should have done better. I'm going to ask you, is the Nike deal and other deals that they have just been, you know, announced giving you confidence that things are changing or do you still have some concerns? I'm in a pro- proper negative mood today, aren't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start as I mean to go on. Um, yeah, I, I still have concerns. Um, yes, we, we have seen significant growth in commercial revenue. Um, we are now bringing in, I think, the 1920 accounts showed commercial revenue of about, off the top of my head, 220 to 230 million which is fantastic, by the way. Um, but Manchester United are about 50 million in excess of that. And on top of that, uh, their match show revenue is normally, in normal times, about 15 to 20 million on top of that as well. So due to match day, due to uh, commercial, um, all, thing, all other things being equal, there's still going to be this 70 million or so gap. I... I've looked at the uh, deals that have been put in place. I've looked at and I've done analysis on how that um, income stream has grown, uh, compared it and benchmarked it to other clubs. And I think there's quite a notable difference between um, this growth in commercial revenue compared to, for example, a Tottenham Hotspur. Now, Tottenham Hotspur is a club that has had no success um, since 2008 when they won what was it called then? The Worthington Cup, now the Carabao, um, hasn't won a major trophy in decades. And um, also is a club that has a fan base that is significantly smaller than Liverpool's. And yet their commercial revenue um, was up to, what, 160 million? It's only 60 million below ours. So it's still a sizable gap. If you think about it, the fact that they've been a club with no success, with a much smaller fan base, Albeit, yes, they're in London and they've got a lovely, shiny stadium. But that their commercial revenue should should not even be within 60 million of us. So is it that they are overperforming or we are underperforming? I think we are underperforming. I think that because we have turned into a, a, an awakened giant in the last five years or so, we should have been shit hot in terms of um, turning things around on the commercial front. So the night deal outwardly looks really good. However, um, this is one of the things that 
quite frankly pisses me off about um, some of the journalists that are close to the club because they continue to regurgitate this figure of £45 million pounds, um, that they claimed uh, the New Balance deal was worth before we moved over tonight, which is complete and utter bullshit. The, the deal, um, and this is something that is not me speculating, was actually um, something that came out in court by Billy Hogan, was that in 1819, that New Balance deal raked in £64 million for the club, and that same individual also mentioned, who is now the chief exec, also mentioned that 1920s um, New Balance deal was delivering growth over 1819 of 58%. 58%. That's why the shirt sales for 1920s kit were astronomical. And that is why I speculated that if, if our revenue for 1819 was 64 million from, uh, for, from the New Balance deal, for 1920, it was probably in the region of about 80 million, possibly even more. So when you compare that to the night deal, which is only a guaranteed 30 million, and the rest of it is a percentage um, for shirt and other um, apparel um, sales um, in terms of net sales, then all of a sudden you think, okay, well, even if shirt sales for Nike's new kit, which launched last season um, and went into season two of that deal now, um, sold fantastically well, and I believe they did, um, the gap between what the New Balance deal was bringing in and what the night deal was bringing in probably isn't all that big. I mean, it, I speculated on Twitter um, a while ago now that I, th I thought the night deal was probably going to generate in the region of, I think, 80 to 100 million. So if you compare that to what night, the New Balance deal generated for us in its last season with Liverpool, um, it's not really all that much of a big increase. Um, but that aside, that aside, um, what other clubs like Manchester United have been very successful as is stringing together a whole host of um, lucrative, smaller deals where they, I don't know, the official tyre partner or the official this partner or that partner, each worth four, five, six million pounds a season. And that was part of the reason why Man United were able to get their revenues on the commercial front up to close to 300 million, which is really what we should be achieving at this stage in the game. And the other thing I criticise the club about is that, look, we have one of the most marketable, one of the most popular uh, players on the planet in Mohamed Salah, hugely popular in the Middle East, hugely popular amongst the Muslim uh, population of the world. And yet, despite that, the club had only achieved two tiddly, piddly little um, deals with um, Egyptian companies when it comes to sponsorship deals. And that, that was, again, in my opinion, very poor. This is a club that had also talked very loudly about wanting to get a naming rights deal for the main stand. And yet, seven years after they talked about that, um, still no um, naming partner for the main stand. You know, Sadio Mane in West Africa, hugely popular in that region, in Senegal and beyond. And again, not a single commercial partner in that part of the world. Not one. So these are the things that I feel indicate that Liverpool has really underwhelmed commercially. Yes, it has generated significant growth in commercial, but that is because I think it's more fan-led. In other words, fans spending a lot more on commercial things like uh, on, the, on the kits and other things um, which has generated this money, rather than the club finding lots of new sponsors. And, and the evidence of that is the fact that 
the club has fewer official partners now, despite having won all this silverware and trophies in the last two, three years, less now than in 2014. And that 2014 point of time was when, um, yes, we just had a successful season, but generally speaking, we, we were pretty shit at that time. So that to me says that the club has, again, struggled to attract and maintain um, long-term partners, that they come and go and um, struggle to retain partners beyond the initial deal, whether it's for a year, two years, three years ending. And um, I mean, at the moment, it, it is a problem generally in football. I mean, Manchester United have also lost partners as well, as have other clubs. Um, but Liverpool are at the point in time where it's had a high profile. It is one of the top two most watched um, football clubs in the world on a week-to-week basis. On a, in terms of social media engagement, it's one of the top two or three. Um, all the metrics suggest that you know we, we should be absolutely killing it on the commercial front, and we aren't. And that, again, is why, to an extent, we are unable to go out and spend the kind of money that we should to bring in elite players. Because are you telling me that a club wouldn't want to sign an elite player? I, I just don't believe that for a second. Um, you know, he will toe the party line. He will try and say things to give no hint of any discord and disharmony between him and the ownership. But let's be, let's be honest. You know, he, he's a manager um, that loves managing the world-class players he's got. So you're telling me that he wouldn't want to replace a Divock Origi with somebody, maybe not world-class, because, you know, he'd want somebody to perhaps be more of a squad player in that kind of role, um, but certainly better than Divock um, in, in that squad. I, I, I just... Um, wouldn't believe someone if they said no, no, he, he's perfectly fine with Divock Origi. So, 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 so that again is why I, I feel yes. I mean, the club announced a couple of deals last week, and it appears that the night deal is going well, but um, it should still be doing better. It's still not fulfilling its potential on the commercial front, and it's not as if we've only had one or two year, years of um, being a resurgent force. We, we are now that for a good four to five years. Uh, and that is why I'd hope to see more. But, you know, as I've talked about before, we've got this new chap in, Matt Scammell. And um, I'm hoping that um, over the next 12 months, we, we see what he can deliver. Um, but more notably, uh, we do have a prominent deal coming up um, for renewal in the um, shirt sponsor, currently Standard Chartered. Uh, and that ends in 2023. But the announcement of that should come in just over 18 months. So it's probably in the next six to nine months that they'll start to actively look either for a better deal with Standard Chartered or to look elsewhere. And yes, Manchester United, um, they've ended up losing um, on, on that front in that they moved from Chevrolet to some other company. Um, and, their, and their new deal is worth less than the Chevrolet one. Um, but we're now, I think and we hope, um, coming out of the worst part of that pandemic. And you know, companies should be a bit more bullish about um, investing in um, a, a sports franchise that is more watched than nearly any other in, in the world. Wow, interesting stuff there, Mo. Um, you brought up 2023 there, and, and that kind of flicked a light in, in my head. So in closing, let, let's talk about another area of revenue that you've covered extensively on Money Talks, and that is match day revenue. I mean, fans are finally back in the stadiums. We saw 
on the opening weekend, you know, how much that meant to not just fans, but I'm sure it means a lot to clubs financially as well. Um, a few weeks ago, work to expand the Anfield end commenced and that project should be completed in time for the start of that 2023-24 stroke season. What kind of impact should this have on club revenues once it's completed? So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm delighted that Stan has commenced work. Um, it, it's interesting, though, and, and again, um, you know, I was critical of the owners earlier in terms of them being ultra-cautious and whatnot. And sorry to go off on a little bit of a tangent, but I think it kind of backs up my earlier point. The designs for that stand, which has only just started work, and the planning application for was submitted um, only last year, the plans were actually largely in place, bar a couple of minor tweaks, all the way back in 2016. And you might wonder, well, how would I know such a thing? And the reason I know is because at the same time, the construction partner for um, the main stand was working on that project. Um, that same company, Carillion, were working with me on other construction projects. And I happen to know people, and I can say this because Carillion no longer exists, um, there were people who were working on that mainstone project who were working with me on, on these other construction projects. And um, they told me, oh, yeah, the, you know, the clubs come up with various designs and um, it, it's largely settled on one um, and then described it and what actually um, came out um, in terms of what was published in terms of drawings and details uh, was virtually identical to what was described to me back in 2016. Um, now, part of it was a cash flow thing. I, th I think the club didn't want to uh, commence Annie Road straight after um, the Anfield Road end because um, I think they wanted to stagger some of the work because obviously they wanted to do Kirby as well. I think they didn't fancy doing um, Kirby completely in line with um, the redevelopment of Annie Road end. But, um, you know, there are other clubs like Spurs, for example, who have undertaken much more costlier construction projects. And, you know, as we are seeing again during this summer, um, you know, they, they've got a huge amount of debt to repay um, the loans for that stand. And yet, despite that, they're still able to, even without Champions League football, um, I think without Europa League, were they just about able They're to in that, uh, the conference. Yeah, which will pay the diddy score. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, despite that, they're still going out and spending money. So, um, yeah, so, so the point being, FSG sat on these designs for the best part of four years before they decided, okay, let's do something with them. And, I mean, there were some more detailed designs that sat behind those um, around things like um, mechanical and electrical and um, foundation designs and various other, the real detail, um, what are known as Reba Stage 4 designs, um, all, all of that work commenced a bit more recently, around 2018-19. Um, but FSG took quite a long time to make decisions, um, even when everything was basically there years ago. Um, so they do move slowly. They're not the slickest of operators. But nonetheless, it's great that that stand, that project, has finally commenced. And it will be delivered, all being well, um, for the start of the 23-24 season. So we've got best part of two years before that stand has to be ready um, and, and the estimated cost of it is 60 million 
And as I noted earlier, it'd be absolutely fantastic if FSD said, okay, well, look, um, you know, we're not happy to invest this Redbird money into um, recruitment of players, but we're more than happy to invest into a fixed asset because that will only um, add value and increase the worth of our asset overall. And I think that's the way that they would look at this potentially, and it would then mean that the club wouldn't have to take out additional borrowing to deliver the annual road end. Once it's completed, I think that we're probably looking at a region of about 15 million extra um, in terms of match day revenue. So possibly a bit more. When the main stand was completed, uh, the match day revenue increased by in the region of 20 million pounds per year. Um, and the bulk of that relates to the huge amount of commercial um, offering within that expanded part of the stand. Um, and, and the facilities there are first class. And because demand um, for corporate hospitality was so, so big, um, the, the initial plan of having no corporate hospitality in, in the Annie Road end was scrapped. And it was then uh, built into the designs to incorporate um, as much um, corporate hospitality as uh, viable into that stand, even though it is the away stand as well. Um, and that is why I've estimated that it will be probably in the region of 15 million a year extra. So if that is the case, match day revenue for the club um, should start to be in the region of about 100 million pounds before we assume any kind of increases to ticket prices, which, which are, um, if, if they do occur, will may maybe happen once in the next five years or so. Um, and if that is the case, our match day revenue uh, will be very close to a Manchester United or a Spurs or, um, or, a, or, or an Arsenal, who are the three clubs that at the moment um, will be generating the most amount of matchday revenue in this current season, assuming that um, full capacity attendances will be allowed throughout the duration of 2020-21. So if that is the case, um, you know, certainly when it comes to matchday, our earnings will be um, as, as good as anyone, uh, broadly speaking, within the Premier League. Um, won't be quite at the levels of a Barcelona or a Real Madrid, um, but certainly um, w would be very pleasing. But at the same time, if we do take out borrowing, then for all intents and purposes, that 50 million um, in uh, sorry additional revenue each season will probably go towards paying that loan off over four or five years. So. Um, that, that, that's where things stand with that stand. But nonetheless, it's exciting. Let's just to end it on a positive note to say that, yes, it'll be absolutely magnificent once that stand is ready in 23, when a 61,000 capacity Anfield um, will be an absolutely ominous sight for most um, away clubs arriving at Anfield. I'll probably go and say all <laughs> away, yeah. away clubs arriving at Anfield. But Mo, wow, you've said it all. And... As ever, this has been a very exciting Money Talks, very informative. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, before we wrap up, do you have anything you want to plug, put over or promote? Um, well, I'm hopeful of getting another Money Talks out um, in the next uh, two to three weeks. I would like to talk about uh, the ticketing situation at Anfield. Obviously, that's um, linked to match day revenue, of course, but um, something that has been quite contentious in terms of how it operated during a couple of uh, pre-season um, games very recently and could be potentially quite an issue 
this coming weekend when we have our first home game of the season. Um, and uh, just to talk about uh, ticketing more, more broadly and um, um, looking forward to discussing that. And um, yeah, there'll be a couple of other subjects that I'll be looking to delve a bit more into um, too. So yeah, really looking forward to getting that out uh, very, very soon. And of course, um, now that matches are back underway, um, I will be making um, the occasional appearances, not only on um, Raw, but also um, on, on the Nina Casa show. So um, really looking forward to appearing on um, Anfield Index for yet another season. Amazing stuff. Um, just from my end, guys, check out all of the awesome stuff on Anfield Index Pro. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Tad Predicts. You can check out everything I'm involved in there. And a cheeky plug for a Tad Predictable podcast where we do score predictions for EPL fixtures each game week. That's on the EPL Index website, the sister site of Anfield Index. Um, but yeah, from myself, from Mo Chatra, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, goodbye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.